Welcome to the Beltway Broadcast, the premier podcast for the workplace learning and talent development professionals of the Association for Talent Development's Metro DC chapter. We've got some great resources in store for you today. Hello, fellow ATDers. I'm Stephanie Hubka, the 2021 Vice President of Finance for the Metro DC chapter of ATD. And I'm Leticia Niego, Vice President of Learning. We also have Helena Hodges, our Director of Technology and Operations, as our producer. For this episode, we are interviewing the author of four books, a recognized speaker, and an expert with 30 years in the talent business across 25 countries who also served on the advisory panel for ATD's capability model, Jonathan Halls. Welcome, Jonathan. Well, thank you for the welcome, Stephanie and Leticia. I'm excited to spend some time. We're going to talk about workplace learning now. That sounds fun. It, well, the thing is, we think it sounds fun, and now our goal is to tell everybody else why it actually is indeed really fun. So we are thrilled that you're you're joining us today, that you had the time to spend with us as we dive into this really exciting topic. But before we do, before we even begin to approach workplace learning, we would love it if you would share a little bit about yourself so that our listeners can get to know you too. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm based in the Washington, D.C. area. Hey, that's close to the D.C. metro. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, and as you can tell by my accent, I grew up in Texas. Uh, well, no, sorry, that was a wrong story. <laughs> um, and I came to America in 2009. My wife's American, and I uh, we moved over here from London, where I um, was uh, doing a lot of uh, work. Uh, primarily, I was a learning executive at the BBC, and then later ran a consulting company that did work around Europe. Um, and in my spare time, I enjoy drinking red wine. I enjoy cooking. And I also like making furniture because, you know, in our business, we're all about the brain. And sometimes you just need to do something physical. So I like doing woodwork. So that's kind of a bit about me. Well, we have a lot in common, although you lost me at the woodworking, but I do want to learn more about that because that actually sounds like a phenomenal hobby. But Let's uh, let's talk about workplace learning because that, of course, is the topic of the day, and it is one of those topics where I think a lot of people, especially in talent development, do tend to get a little bit excited about it, and for good reason. So, let's start by setting, or maybe even resetting the stage for everyone joining us today. How do you define workplace learning? Yeah, good question. I think the workplace learning. Well, first of all, I define learning um, as the intentional process that uh, we go through to build skills and capability in the workplace. So that's kind of how I would look at it. And I think it's very different for us. We need to be thinking it's different from, say, learning in the school environment, the college environment, uh, and other environments. Because what we do is we're all about building capability and skills, but that's very much linked to the performance of organizations. So I think that's what gives us a particular Nuance. Now, I'm, I'm a, an adjunct professor at George Washington University, and when I teach uh, students on the master's uh, program that I teach on, um, it's a very different approach than when I'm with clients who are looking at changing the performance of a company. So I think it's distinctive about something the learner does to be better at what they do in the workplace. I love that as a definition, and I think it, it absolutely makes a lot of sense. And so now you've kind of got me thinking, as far as current learning practices are concerned, 
what do you think is still working effectively for us? And are there practices that maybe we're using or maybe you've seen in many organizations that really aren't serving us very well anymore? Yeah, I, I actually think we're in big trouble. Um, yeah. And, and I, I get in trouble for myself for saying this because it sounds just a wee bit controversial. But I think when you look at the plethora of blogs that are being published about learning, talent development, whatever we call it this week, right? Yeah, yeah. What do they talk about? Micro-learning strategy, gamification, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the learner experience, the um, authoring tools, technology, virtual this, virtual that, e-this, e-that, video. I mean, heck, I wrote a book on video and on podcasting and on writing. I've done all those kind of stuff. And I'm not even into that stuff. I mean, I love it. <laughs> But I'm into learning. Yeah. And we get so hooked on all these things that make people think things are going to work well that we forget that at the very, very, very core thing, what we do is learning. And I feel that as we go into a period of time where organizations need to be agile and responsive, we need to peel back all of these fads, all of these buzzwords, and focus on what the learner, the professional in their workplace is doing. And if you go and talk to a lot of people, particularly people who are new to the field, um, they'll talk to you about how we've got to have a gamification strategy. Let's introduce gamification. I've lost track of clients who call me and they say, can you come and help us with gamification? (laughs) I say, why? Oh, well, it's a new trend. But aren't we here to help people work better? I mean, that's what we're in the business of doing. You know, someone said, what do you do, Jonathan? I was on an aircraft traveling to a gig and uh, I said, I help people be, uh, sorry, I help people help people. <laughs> I love that. That's our job. We help people be better at what they do in the job. Um, and so the challenge for us going forward, I think, is finding, going back to our roots and finding what we're really all about. Because I don't think having nice learning portals, great authoring tools. And I think I don't think any of that's any good unless we understand that what we do is help people learn. And what is learning? So I, I did a survey recently. I was doing a workshop for a bunch of uh, learners doing a professional development program with me. And I says, can you put, put up on the screen what learning is? And you get all these wishy-washy terms like growth, um, mm-hmm. development, um, <laughs> exploration, and discovery. And I'm thinking to myself, if I was buying learning, I don't want growth, exploration, and discovery. I want skills. Yeah. If I'm hiring somebody to come into my my work team to help them with conflict, I want them to give me skills. And how I how do I know they're going to be able to do that? So I think we need to be defining learning in a far more robust way. And the way that I look at learning is I think that learning, the mechanics of learning require us to do three things. The first thing is we need to understand and conceptualize a skill, okay, And then we've got to be able to remember how to do it in the workplace. And then finally, we need to master it so it actually becomes something we do very, very, very well. And I would love to hear our profession talking in those terms instead of talking to me about micro-learning. Oh, micro-learning, it's the future of our profession. No, it's not. Learning is. (laughs) And it always has been. And the way learning happens in our brain hasn't changed for 2,000 years. It's just that we're doing it differently. And so learning is something that happens on board the learner. It doesn't happen at the front of a classroom. It doesn't happen in a learning module. It doesn't happen in a presentation. No, it happens in the mind of the learner. And unless they go through those three steps, first of all, understanding something, then remembering how to do it, and then mastering it, unless they do that, learning's not going to happen. And 
our industry spends so much time talking about what we do to learners that I think we need to change that and ask, what can we do to help learners do the work of learning and become far more strategic about it? And maybe explore what I would call the learning ecosystem. What are we doing to help people learn? And so when you talk about the future and what's going on, we know that organizations are going through tremendous changes. A lot of that was turbocharged because of the pandemic. Right. But what people want is to be able to do their work well. And our problem is that we think in terms of classrooms, in, t- in terms of modules, in terms of virtual sessions. When if we started thinking in terms of what the learner's doing to be better at what they do, that, you know, that maybe they work for a government agency helping people. If we think in terms of what are they doing to learn to be better helpers of people, and then we stop saying, well, you've got to come to class, we've got to come. All of a sudden, we can be more agile ourselves. And I think our big challenge is training and development departments are based on the industrial model of organization, which is big lumbering and worked 50 years ago, but don't work anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where I think we have the biggest challenge and the biggest ex- excitement and the greatest opportunity to really be transformative. Anyway, I, I'll rave on. So I've given you a lot of stuff there to go, oh, gosh, what's this guy talking about? No, no. And in To be totally honest, you've actually got me thinking about an experience I had, and this was about a decade ago. I went in for a job interview, and I happened to mention the word gamification, and I did so very earnestly because it was a concept that I had worked with. But rather than be able to share that experience, I remember the interviewing committee just jumped on it. It was a word that excited them. And I remember getting home that night and mentioning to my husband, I think I'm going to get an offer on jargon, <laughs> just a very trendy term. I, I didn't even have an opportunity to talk about what I knew about it or how I'd used it before. And I think what you're calling attention to is not just the need for the, the learning professional to step above that and keep the learner in mind and make sure that the work we're doing is about the learner. It's also about ensuring that the organizations themselves do not get too entrapped by these exciting buzzwords and this terminology that sound really good, but may not have enough meaning or enough change really behind it to support a learner. Yeah. And um, when you think about it, those terms, those models give people a lot of security yeah. because they feel like they're going to work. And when they're done well, I mean, look, I'm a big fan of Carl uh, Cap, for example. I think he's a great guy. I like him. And his ideas of gamification are absolutely cutting, um, you know, the, the state of the art, cutting edge. Yes, but, absolutely. Um, he will be the first to tell you that unless they're about learning, they're not going to change anything. I mean, that's kind of what it's all about. And, and I don't have a problem with micro-learning. You know, Carla Turgidson and people like that have written some great books on that. And you know what? We've been doing micro-learning for hundreds of years. We're that's just now right. calling it micro-learning. No, nothing's wrong with any of that. It's just that those tidy little packages give us too much security to fall back on. And they give our clients too much security because we say to someone, oh, well, we're going to be incorpor- we're going to incorporate a, a micro-learning strategy in this um, learning um, implementation. Uh, and all of a sudden they go, hmm, well, that's really good. And very often they don't know what we're talking about, but it sounds good. Yeah. And one of the biggest problems about learning is we can't predict whether it's going to be successful or not. Only the learner can do that. What we can do is we can follow the science and do everything in our in, 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 um, that's possible in our means to create the right environment for them to build their learning. But there's no guarantee it's going to be work. It's, it's like these people who think that 
It's about giving a presentation. The perfect presentation leads to good learning. No, it doesn't. Because anytime I give a presentation, I'm going to be putting together a bundle of words into a sentence. And every one of those words has three or four possibly different nuances that 25 different people are going to take in different directions. And they're going to use those to build different interpretations of what I say. Then all of a sudden, there we go. There's no certainty. We don't copy and paste, which is very much a thing of the industrial model. And so, um, I get the fact that this stuff is important, but I think we need to peel back the layers before we really leverage all the opportunities that um, that it actually offers to us. I think you're absolutely right. And it really kind of begs the question, and I am, I'm just so curious about what your thoughts are. How do we do that? What does it look like to begin that process, especially for a talent development professional, a practitioner working in the field? What do you think about getting started and being part of that process and really starting to to drive things forward? You know, I reckon we need to go back and celebrate what learning is. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And stop trying to be so sophisticated. So, you know, one of the one of the greatest strengths of our profession is also one of the greatest weaknesses. The greatest strength is that people walking into learning situations, and very often they're the classroom and the virtual learning situation and building e-learning modules that I was talking about earlier, but the people who walk into these classrooms and these learning situations are experts at what they do, mm-hmm. but they're not experts at learning. Yeah. And what that means is we're throwing so many people in front of the headlights without properly preparing them to understand that very often what they don't say is more important than what they do say. Mm -hmm. And stepping out of the way of the learner so they can actually figure stuff out with our help can sometimes be more powerful. So I sometimes think that what we need to do is go back to basics and really explore what learning is. And not these hokey pokey things like it's discovery and uh, it's growth. Yeah, look, I, Mm -hmm. I like all those. They're all real nice. But they don't necessarily change organizations with precision. Right. And so I think the first step we need to do is go back and understand what learning is and understand the learner's role in that and then try and figure out um, how we link that to organizational goals. And I think picking up a dose of humility, we, we, we need to recognize we can't do everything. A lot of things that we're asked to do won't work. And being humble enough and bold enough to say, you know what? Uh, I'm not sure the solution you're asking for is something that we can do. We can do it, but you're not going to be getting any value for money out of it. And I think things like that, I wrote an article, I got a lot of um, heated debate for the ATD website about two years ago. (laughs) And I said that trainers are not keynote speakers. (laughs) And um, of course, all the keynote speakers were outraged by my comments. But I said, no, if you're a trainer, if you're in the world of workplace learning, you're more like a physical therapist. You know, you, you help people mm. learn the exercises they do, stretch the right muscles, and you give them exercises so they go away and they exercise and they relax that muscle, then they come back. But I can't take somebody's pain away from a physical therapist. I can help them do what they need to do, but they have to do it. And so I think changing our mindset becomes really, really important. I think the other thing too, and I, I think we've got to hire more people in the senior level who know and understand learning. I've lost track of clients uh, who – are hiring people into the learning function to lead the learning function who might be really good executors of practical strategy. But when you talk to them about the learning ecosystem, they have a blank look on their face. When you talk to them about uh, self-directed learning, they go, oh, oh, what's, what's that? 
I, I think we just need a refresh. And I think, um, I mean, your question is how do we start that? Well, I think we start yeah. that by getting back to learning. I think we start that by looking at our mindset. And I think we start it in small ways and not big ways. We always want to do things big. But maybe we just look at our practice and say, what's the most effective? I mean, so give you an example. I was head of television training at the BBC uh, for, for a number of years. And um, it was probably the most wonderful experience uh, as a learning professional I can have. You're right. I mean, I come from media. My uh, my career in the 90s was as a talk show host. That's what I was paid to do every morning. So when I was at the BBC uh, in the training department, I had 250 trainers who taught people how to make TV shows, radio shows, websites, the whole bit. And I decided to take the director's training class. So I got the certificate in how to direct TV shows. Fabulous course. And probably considered one of the best courses in Europe, and I would hasten to add in the world, uh, in terms of how it equips people to direct single-camera TV shows. But I have to admit, despite all the great trainers I had teaching me, I probably learned more about TV over a pint of beer at the pub with people who were some of the best practitioners, who were some of the wisest people. I didn't feel threatened. We're having fun and all that kind of stuff. And so I wonder if it's worth stepping back and saying to ourselves, where do we learn best? Now, can we try that in our training classes? So we've got this module that we usually teach. What would happen if we didn't do it in the classroom? Yeah. Okay, we take someone to the pub. Um, I took some people to the park once at a, a workshop on uh, <laughs> on learning psychology at the BBC. We were sitting in a room. It was horrible. I said, let's go and do this in the park. And people started fiddling with stuff in the park and making stick things. And we used that as an opportunity to say, well, isn't it interesting how we learn to adjust to our environment? And then the different environment, I just stepped back and they taught themselves what we're looking at doing. And so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm talking all over the place, but I think we need to have a very real sense of the science of learning and the philosophy, not the science can't exist without the philosophy. But at the same time, we need to get out of our mold and try different things, but we can't do it all at once. Um, one of the clients I had recently, and uh, I just had a wonderful catch-up call with one of them just a few moments ago before uh, we got together here on this podcast. Um they came to me because they wanted to so-called modernize their training. And um, we found the best way to modernize the training was not change the whole training department, but to do a couple of little small things on their own. And then that got a kind of traction and a bit of success because people found that, no, you don't need to use PowerPoints in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, So a few more people tried (laughs) something else. And it actually took on a life of its own because instead of trying to be the good trainers and follow the, the right method, they were really watching how the learners built their learning, and it was really infectious. So I think we start small, see what happens, be prepared to make mistakes. That's part of learning. It's part of innovation, and, and kind of see where that goes. I I think that's phenomenal advice, and I really appreciate the challenge that comes with that. And I think going back to what you had shared about getting pushback from, say, the keynote speakers who want to be in front of people, that is what they do. It may be their comfort zone, and certainly people can learn in that environment. I've always thought that it makes a little bit of sense because when you are in front of your learners, you do have a little bit more control over what that experience is like, how they are hearing information. But what you don't have necessarily is any ability to control or influence what they're doing with it later. And in fact, that can be where many of us trip up a little bit. 
it's difficult to measure some of that more informal learning. But I love your thoughts as far as incorporating that, getting people out of the classroom, getting people out of that mindset, and really encouraging them to make workplace learning about more than the PowerPoint, more than the person in front of the room. It becomes more of a a 360-degree experience for them. And that can only translate to better experiences as far as how they perform in their roles. Yeah, and I think there's two things that, that I pick up on that too. One of them, um, first of all, in terms of the keynote speakers, yeah. there is nothing wrong with being a keynote Not speaker. Not at all. And this is, this is where essential. the bruises. Yeah, the, the, this is where the bruises were felt because I think people felt I was being critical of, no, I do loads uh-uh. of keynotes myself, right? That's part yeah, of bread of course, and butter. Yeah. But if we're doing workplace learning – it's a different thing. It's not a keynote. And that and, that's, and right. that's a big point. But so often we think that trainers are mini keynote speakers. Yeah. But you make a really interesting point. And, and that's that 360 degree piece of the learning ecosystem and how um, we have so much less impact on learners than we think. If you think about, you do a class on um, EQ skills, let's say it's a two-day class, and somebody comes in for two days. So out of a whole month, that's two days out of um, 20 days a month. So it's one day, that's, that's 10% of their month. So um, when you look at that over the entire year, that's less than 1% of their year's experience. The people they work with and the people they work for are gonna, and their customers are going to have more influence and impact on what they're doing. So actually, we're a lot less important than we really think we are. Probably what we should be doing, if we're really focused on learning, we say to ourselves, well, the question is, how do they continue their learning when they're finished time with us? And maybe yeah. our job is not to necessarily teach them EQ, but teach them a little bit and then teach them how they can continue to learn it. And you, you're probably familiar, uh, you know, Brickerhoff did some research back, uh, this is probably about 10, 15 years ago, I think, mm. that he released it, that yeah. showed that when a manager has a conversation with somebody about the workshop they're about to attend, and it's specifically about the business goals of the workshop, not hope you have a nice time, but when they have that intentional yep. conversation, it increases the effectiveness by like 30 or 40%. And when yeah. they get back, when they follow that up, it increases it by 30 or 40%. And so what are we doing if we really want to be radical? You know, how, how do we give up our empires and say, well, actually, we don't need training rooms. What we need is we need to be influencing how people in the organization continue the learning well beyond. And some people kind of get kind of nervy about that because there's certain politics in organizations. You know, I, I'm not, when I was a learning executive, I had all this real estate. I had people working at three different campuses and all this kind of fun stuff, which is pretty good for the ego. But that's not necessarily going to pr- guarantee any learning. What are we doing to get people out in the business connecting with the right networks to encourage and nurture people in the right direction? I was doing a, a gig at the Daily Telegraph in London and I was doing a supervisor's class and one of the guys said to me, they all think I'm sucking up to the editor. I said, what do you mean? Well, they think because he's got all these supervisor classes coming that I'm just sucking up to the editor to get a promotion. Um, and so he goes back after doing this workshop and the whole culture is against him being a good supervisor because they think it's just sucking up. So we might do the world's greatest class, but what are we doing to actually nurture the environment when we go back? And the, the, the research on how uh, people develop expertise, and by expertise I mean really good at something, how they do things quicker with fewer mistakes, all that kind of stuff, it's so absolutely um, unquestionably focused on the fact that you need lots of time 
to be able to get to that level of performance that we call an expert. 15 to 25 years. Malcolm Gladwell talked about it in Outliers, although he got it wrong. It wasn't really 10 years, but you know, it's still mm-hmm. a good, good, good mark. Yeah. Um, he misquoted the research. But if we think that we can teach somebody how to be good at their skills in just two days, I think we're kidding ourselves. The reality is it's going to take years and years. Yeah. So what are we doing to change our organizations? Because our organizations are built for annual reviews and quarterly reports. So it's very hard to start talking about developing somebody's skill as a salesperson over 10 years. But really, if we're going to be super effective, we should be thinking about 10 years' time, how we get there, what their pathway is. I call that the talent continuum. It's a kind of, who knows, maybe that'll become a buzzword when my next book comes (laughs) out. And then everybody can misquote it and use it wrongly. Um, (laughs) But then we've got the ecosystem, the learning ecosystem. So how are we looking at the breadth? I mean, really to be effective, and I know the folks in the Master Trainer Program now quote some stuff I did where I talk about the role for tomorrow's learning professional is to become an invisible trainer. We need to be around about kind of like a wedding planner, shaping everything so the experience just happens right, rightly. And at the end of that experience, if it's done well, they've been introduced to the right information so they can build their understanding. They've had a chance to practice it so they remember it. And over that long period of time, they've been able to master it. And I think that's uh, the kind of key approach. I absolutely agree. And I, I think that it allows the learning professional to remain very essential. And it does not detract any from that very critical role, but it does allow the, the role of the learner to become that much more important. If at the end of the day, this is about what is best for our learners, what best prepares and positions and supports them. I think you're absolutely right. I think that that style, those conversations are the ones that really need to be, we need to be having at this point in order to get us to that next level. Well, I know we are just about at that point in our episode where we love to turn things over to a couple of rapid fire questions. But before we do, are there any final tips, any final resources, anything else that we should be thinking about as we start to prepare for the the future of learning, the future of work, the ever-changing workplace. I mean, I'll, I'll throw as many buzzwords as I possibly can since I think that's a, a secondary theme for us today. But as we get ready to really build very supportive workplace learning, anything else we should keep in mind? You know what? I, I think we have this commercial prerogative to look like we know what we're talking about. Yeah. We have to look confident in the workplace. But I wonder if Beneath that bravadery, we can also admit to ourselves, we probably don't know the answer to most things. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, the more we understand the core basics of what learning is and how we can help other people do that work of learning so they can be better at what they do, the more we can get back to that and have this kind of wide-eyed excitement and say, we really don't know what this is all about. I think, I think that's where we need to be. And before we go to those rapid fire questions, if I can just yeah. say one one really important thing, because you, you hear me being passionate about this stuff. And it, it's not because, you know, before we started this, uh, I think I mentioned to you guys, I like doing wine, right? I like my wine. And, of course, um, yeah. I don't want to sound like I'm whining <laughs> because all the stuff I'm talking about is because I'm passionate about the impact that we as professionals can have in our organizations. When you think about this, 
I mean, just think about this. Somebody comes into a learning experience that you facilitate, and as a result of that, they get confidence. Their skills are sharper so they can do their job faster. It means they can go home earlier, see their kids. Their proficiency means that they might get a promotion, they might get a bonus, they might get a pay rise. You think about the impact we can have if we really do this well. It's kind of exciting because then when they do that really well, their organization functions better. If it's a government agency, they help the community better, and that has a knock-on effect. If it's a commercial organization, perhaps um, the, 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 the organization makes more money and the people who are retired waiting for the dividends from that organization's success they get greater security. I mean, it's really, really cool when you think that when we do our work well, we help people be better at what they do. It has a knock-on effect, not just from confidence, but from organizational success. And then that impacts the community, the broader community. And I'm passionate because at the end of the day, what we do can really count. And most of the time it does count. Sometimes we get thrown off our off, off, off our pathway because of all the shiny new things that come along. But when you think about what we do, it's a noble profession. And that's why it's worth to be constantly humbling ourselves and saying, how can we do this better? Because what we do when we do it well has a pretty amazing impact. That is a phenomenal call to action. A truly empowering way to look at it too. I think you're 100% right about that. Absolutely. Jonathan, at the end of every episode, we like to ask our guests five rapid-fire style questions. Each question requires less than 60 seconds to respond. Are you ready? You betcha. I hope I can respond well. (laughs) (laughs) You're off to a good start. I think you can. (laughs) Yes, definitely. So here's the first question. Give us one book that all talent development professionals must read and why. Okay. You know what? I I, I have different thoughts every week. There's so many different books and I'd love to recommend my books, but (laughs) I would suggest The Art and Science of Learning by Elaine Beek because it gives a phenomenal overview. Actually, it's The Art and Science of Training, not Learning. The Art and Science Mm -hmm. of Training gives a phenomenal overview of what training is all about and introduces anybody new to our profession to these core things. Great, great. Give us one tool that you recently learned about and immediately started using. Okay, so this is this is a kind of a cheat answer. I didn't. I learned about this tool about a year and a half ago, then didn't do anything with it. But last week, I went back and relearned how to use how to use a. Uh, oh, I forgot the name of it. A tool on woodworking is a mitre tool. No, you know what? I'm stumped. A tool, <laughs> a grouching tool. Is that what it's called? I don't know. Let me just say I learned a new widget and how to use it properly. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Love it. That works too. Tell us, what is one piece of talent development-related advice you have ever been given? Quit trusting me as a trainer and trust the learner to do the learning. Nice. What is one thing that you're excited about that's coming up in the coming year? I'm working on a couple of new books and they're getting me really excited because they're forcing me to go back to basics and really think through, thinks things through. But when you look at the big picture of uh, 2021, 22, I think we have real opportunities to show the world that talent development can be a partner with organizational success. Yeah, look at that. All those buzzwords, but I actually do believe it. <laughs> Very nice. 
And last one, what is the one thing within our chapter or industry that you are deeply grateful for right now? I think the network of people who share their talent in a way that helps people grow. Amazing. Oh, I just remembered the word. It's a router. That's the name of the tool. It's a router. Ah. <laughs> Interesting. Not one we would have been able to help you with. No. <laughs> well, look, I, just, I, I know what it looks like. I just couldn't remember what it's called. <laughs> you know, sometimes the best tools that we have, we completely forget the name. We just remember that they're valuable. Sometimes that's the most important part. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Jonathan, I can't thank you enough for joining us today from digging through the buzzwords, which I think is going to make me smile for quite some time, to really focusing on what it means to put our learners front and center. I think you've given new meaning to the value of workplace learning. I have no doubt that everyone who has joined us for today's episode has taken away something really valuable that they're going to be able to use. So thank you so much. Can I give you guys a shout out too? I started the global network in the UK for ATD back in 2001, and I, I, I totally regretted it after all the hard work I had to do for two years, three years. <laughs> so I just want a, a shout out for you guys because you guys have got leadership roles in the ATD Metro, and everyone thinks of AT as a big national, you know, national conference is pretty mm-hmm. incredible, but the work you guys do to keep the local networks going is awesome as well. So um, oh. just a good shout out to what you do. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Oh, gosh, we really appreciate that. And of course, Leticia, thank you so much for being here for the great rapid fire questions as usual. That was great. Thank you so much. (laughs) And of course, many thanks to all of you for listening today. Before you go, we have a message from our producer, Helena Hodges. Membership in the Metro DCATD provides you with multiple benefits to enhance your career. Not a member yet? What are you waiting for? Go to dcatd.org forward slash membership application to join our chapter today. Want to network with other chapter members? Join the Metro DC chapter of ATD members on LinkedIn today. 